So as we come to look at biblical stewardship, why a class on this topic at all? Like, why biblical stewardship? I think one of the reasons why we need a class on this topic, um, I think a couple reasons. First, I think that in our cultural and society at large, maybe perhaps in America, we think that our money, um, our time, our skills and abilities, uh, they're unrelated to the spiritual life that we have. There's like a major disconnect. We don't talk about money. We don't talk about time, how we use it, or our skills, because that's, that's all about me. And it really has nothing to do with my spiritual life whatsoever. We like really disconnect the two. I mean, when's the last time that we've confessed sin for misusing our money or material goods? Uh, when's the last time we confessed as sin a misuse of the time that God's given us here on earth? I think in our churches, uh, perhaps with others, in our marriages, we're quick to confess sins of lust, unkind words, inconsideration. Um, but the misuse of God's resources here on earth, I mean, I, I was thinking about, I'm like, when's the last time, Shannon, that we've actually confessed a sin? Like, you know, we are selfishly using our goods here. And, you know, that was wrong. Like, I, I don't even know if that thought crosses our mind, like, ever, at least for me. Maybe you guys are way more sanctified in this than I am. But as I'm looking at these things, I don't know if it comes across our mind at all. But then secondly, I think we need a class on biblical stewardship because sometimes I think we over, I've got to be careful here, overreact to the prosperity gospel. And we're so like adamantly opposed to that, that then we don't even talk about like resources, time, money, and what God thinks about our use of it. All we know is that we hate the prosperity gospel, and now we're not going to talk about money at all, pretty much. Like, I, I think there might be a bit of that as well, and we'll get into that next week. Um, but I think we need to contemplate what Scripture actually has to say about how we are to use God's resources. Because what we do with our, our money, everything that we have, deeply matters to God. And our use of possessions as scripture illustrates for us in many different places, can even demonstrate whether or not we are truly of God, if we truly know him as our Lord. Consider these two well-known passages with me briefly. First, Zacchaeus. We all know Zacchaeus, right? Luke 19, verses 8 and 9. Who's Zacchaeus? He's a rich tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. And it's likely he took advantage of many people. And Jesus sees him, he invites him, says, I'm going to your house to eat with you. I'm going to dine with you tonight. And after encountering Jesus, he stood up before all the people and he says, I will give away half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And then what does Jesus say directly afterwards? Do you guys remember what he said? What, what does he say like right after that? Salvation has come to this home today. Very good, Richard. Very good. I mean, you know your Bible. That's awesome. Yeah, salvation has come to this home today. Salvation, right? For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Salvation for Zacchaeus is correlated with what he does with his money and riches. And instead of serving and valuing money most, he values Jesus and what he thinks about his wealth and money more. And so he parts ways with money and goods for Jesus and his kingdom here on earth. And so in the words of Randy Elkhorn, Jesus judged the reality of Zacchaeus' salvation 
by his willingness, his cheerful eagerness to part with his money for God's glory and the goods of others. And so because of this, Jesus again makes the claim, salvation has come to you today. You're demonstrating that you are actually a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham. So this is one connection where salvation and, and, and his use of his material goods proves that he's been transformed by Christ. But then there's another connection found in Matthew 19, uh, verses 16 through 25. And this is the story, I think we know well again, of the story of the rich, young ruler. All of you guys know this story. I'm assuming that anyways. But this rich, young ruler is seeking eternal life. And long story short, he comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to earn eternal life? And long story short, Jesus tells the man that there is one thing that he lacks, right? What is it that he lacks? Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Sell everything you have, your material goods, possessions, and then follow me. And after hearing these words, the man goes away, sad at once, for he was very wealthy. And again, the point is not that we have to sell everything we have to be saved, but Jesus wants the man's heart. Jesus has to be more important than anything. And often our money, our possessions, our comfort, our wealth get in the way of truly valuing Jesus more than anything in this world. And so Jesus was calling this man, again, to use all that he has for Jesus as king. Submit to him. Follow him. And he says at the end of it, no, I can't do that. I will not use my resources for you, Jesus. I will not obey you and follow you. And then, of course, we all know what happens afterwards. Jesus says to his disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the point is, again, that wealth money, material goods, and possessions are an incredible barrier to true salvation and eternal life. It's important for us to remind ourselves of this, especially as we, I think, live where wealth and money and comfort is perhaps more abundant than at any time of history here in America. The poorest of poor in Minnesota have more wealth than many people at any time in history when we look at the poverty that has really stricken across the world. And so again, it's important for us to consider biblical stewardship and what God expects, especially what can prove to be a barrier to what is most important. So again, as we look at just these couple of brief passages introductory, introductory again, we need to realize that what we do with our time our money, our resources matters to Jesus. And there are just thousands of passages talking about this in Scripture. So again, as we look at this topic for the next three weeks, it's, it's my hope that we'll learn how to view God's good gifts to us, biblically, through the lens of Scripture, and then, by His grace, we will use His good gifts to us in a way that maximizes His glory and is used in the way he desires us to use them. Now, one final caveat before we just press on here. Before we look at the foundations for biblical stewardship on the screen, um, some of you might be like rule lovers. You know, you want a rule for everything. Like, okay, Josh, um, 
I'm expecting you to tell me, like, how much money should I give each Sunday or out of my paycheck? How much time should I spend on myself on Facebook, like a percentage? Um, how much money and time should I spend, you know, on others around me? How much should I give away to others? What does God want in those regards? And if you're, like, looking for specific rules so you can, like, check a box, you're going to be disappointed uh, <laughs> because the Bible doesn't actually give us really specific rules in these regards. There's actually a great amount of Christian liberty in regards to our financial stewardship of all things. And for some of you, this is, of course, liberating news. Like, yes, I have some freedom here. And for others of you, this just frustrates you. You want to know, like, oh, man, I'm not sure if God's pleased with how much I'm giving and all, you know. Like, but the reality is that in this room, with different consciences and perspectives, we all have to discern this for ourselves. I can't tell you that exact thing. Instead, when we go through this class, we're going to look at the goals that Scripture gives for each of us. And how we get to those goals is going to, again, look differently for each and every one of us, okay? Maybe some of you can afford to give up 10% of your income, others of you 30%. I don't know, and I'm not pretending to tell you. But what our goal is, as Scripture tells us, is to show off the worth and the excellence of our redeeming Lord with all that he's given us. And so the question is not, how much money can I keep for myself, but how can I use all my money, all my time, all my talents and abilities to make as much of Christ as possible? That's, that's what we're going for here in this class. As Paul calls us to do in Colossians 3:17, And whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. And so our aim is to learn how to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory. So this brings us then to foundations for biblical stewardship. But anything else before we, we dive into this class? Any comments or questions on what I've said? All right, if you... If you do, let me know. What then are the foundations for biblical stewardship? And we want to begin with really two foundational truths that we cannot miss as Christians. The two truths are the following on the screen. God owns everything. We are to steward it faithfully, right? God owns everything that there is, everything we have, and we are to steward it faithfully. So we begin with this first crucial foundation that we must understand, grasp, and deeply embed into us. Whether it's our money, possessions, time, energy, our very lives, everything that we have belongs to God. He owns it. This truth is one that we have to reiterate over and over and over and over again. But scripture does that for us, and we just, again, want to emphasize this truth before we go any further. God created all things in the beginning, Genesis 1. Therefore, all things belong to him. He owns everything, and he knows how everything is to operate. But then again, in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12, at the height of King David's power, he says this, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. For everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. King David, of course, had a lot at this point at the height of his power. And he again is proclaiming the truth. 
Everything belongs to God. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand. It is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Again, we own nothing. It all belongs to God, no matter what we have. And then one more time in Psalm 24, David proclaims that the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and he established it in the rivers. Again, don't miss this. God owns everything. All of it. Now, I'm guessing you already think, yep, I know that. Bible class 101. I grew up with that truth. Yes, I get that. Why are we covering this elementary level truth again? And there are at least a a few different reasons why we have to come back to this truth again. First, though we understand this to be true as Christians, as believers, reminding ourselves of this truth helps us remind us with the people we're interacting, the unbelievers, the co-workers that we have, family members, they often reject this foundational truth. Like, people you talk with every day do not agree with this truth. God does not own everything. I am my own person. I own stuff. And so, rather than understand this, that this is like one of the root issues with people we're trying to reach, we get caught up on superficial issues. We, we attack the fruit and not the root and I want us to, again, get this. We, we need to work with people on this route. Don't get caught up with people on politically on a wide array of issues, whether it's finances of this country or immigration policies or gender issues. Get to the core issue of what a person is building their life on. And if they're rejecting this truth, the beginning of what happened at the fall, you're not going to get very far with them at all. So just, again, an application of this truth Maybe don't waste your time on Facebook debating with people that are not accepting of this truth at the ground level. Work with them in person. Love them. Show them their God and creator and how much he loves them in word and deed. So don't get distracted by superficial issues. Go to the heart of the problem that God owns everything. In the beginning, he made it all. He is good. We rejected him. And so we need a savior. Second, that we are covering this basic truth because While we say and acknowledge this to be true, the question we must fundamentally ask ourselves is whether or not this crucial truth has actually made its way down into our hearts and our hands as Christians and believers. Sorry, I forgot about this right here. So we need to deepen then again in this truth. While we say we affirm this intellectually, we assent to it, um, has it actually penetrated your heart that God owns everything that you have? Do you, be, do you not only say you believe that, but do you actually feel gratitude that what you have is a grace from God? Like, if it's true, he owns everything, we should be grateful he's given us anything at all. Like, God, thank you for giving me what I have, no matter how much or how little. So a few penetrating questions we, we might ask ourselves. Are we understanding this truth in the way that we give thanks to God? Are we truly thankful with the plenty or little that we have? Or are we instead feeling entitled? I need more. I deserve more here. I deserve more over here. Rather than realizing, nope, God owns everything, and I am thankful that he's given me anything at all. Does the recognition that God owns all things then impact the way that you actually use your time, your life, your resources? I mean, when was the last time you you thought 
of what God thinks about your use of things. Like, I wonder what God thinks about my budget this month. Like, when's the last time that crossed your mind? Or you ask God to give you wisdom about how to use his resources wisely. Or to put it simply, are you, if that thought that's never crossed your mind whatsoever. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we act and pretend that the things that we have um, actually belong to us rather than God. And I think John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, gives an excellent illustration of this exact phenomenon, right? There's a person, he says, who comes into an art museum empty-handed, and as they, they walk into different rooms, they begin taking art pictures off the wall, right, and just putting them under their arms. And, and when a person on staff confronts the person who's, like, stealing this artwork, he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm becoming an art collector. The person on staff, of course, is like astounded, like, what? Those pictures don't belong to you. And the person replies, sure they do. They're mine. They're under my arm, right? And while we look at the story and see how clearly absurd and out of touch with reality that person is, it's often how we often operate in this world as individuals, I think. I mean, we take what God has given us, we pretend it's ours all the time. We give no thought to what he wants us to do with his resources, even though everything belongs to him. So as 1 Timothy 6-7 reminds us, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it at all. And so before we go any farther with this foundational truth, uh, there are several points of response that that we have to make based on this elementary level truth. And the first is we have to respond by, again, over and over again, yielding ownership of all that we have to God, whether that's our life, our money, all of it. We have to acknowledge, God, it belongs to you. It's not mine. i got to get out of my self-centered way of thinking here. What do you want me and my family, my ch- what do you want us to do with what you've given us? We have to come to terms with that reality. And so then have an orientation, a a posture of thinking through what God would have you do with all that you have. Now again, I am not telling you how this works itself out for you, okay? It's going to look different for me than from Richard or from Mary Jo or my mom. It's going to look different for all of you. So the solution isn't to say, oh, well, then how, what does Josh and Aaron do? No, don't, don't look to us. Don't look to one. What does God want you to do in your unique situation and circumstances? And then second, we need to respond by considering the way that we talk about our resources, our money, our time, and our possessions. How do we talk about what we have around each other, our children, right? If it truly belongs to God, we should work, I think, intentionally to use words at times that, like, again, demonstrates that reality. It belongs to him. So next time, you know, you're speaking with your spouse about the budget on a monthly basis or whatever, how are we doing using God's money this month, right? Now, how are we using our money this month? How well are we, do- how are we doing using God's money? Just acknowledging that in word. And again, this might be helpful with children as well. You know, children are notorious for saying, that's my toy, give it back to me. You know, like all the time, like my son. And and we need to remind them, you know, (laughs) this doesn't belong to you. Everything we have comes from God. And the question, you like, how does God want you to use your toy, Elias? Like, it belongs to him. Are you going to use it to please him? Or are you going to pretend that it actually belongs to you? 
Now, of course, I get, like, functionally speaking, we talk about toys belonging. So, like, hey, don't play with that person's toy. Like, I get that, okay? But I think reminding them ultimately that this ultimately is all God's. And so we want to work out this implication into our hearts, how we feel about our possessions, and then our speech, what we do um, as well. So, Lord willing, that we should grow in acknowledging frequently with thanksgiving and gratitude all that God's given us. Okay, so whether at meals and our regular prayers, if you pray before dinner, breakfast, whatever, or just your family devotions, acknowledging this uh, to your family, help them have gratitude. We don't deserve this, but God's blessed us with so much. And it's a gift. So again, we we first cover this foundational truth, right? God owns everything. And then that brings us to once more the second truth that we need to consider here. We are stewards of all that he's given us. But before we go on to this point, questions, comments on the first, God owns everything. All right, good, we'll we'll keep moving on then. We then are stewards of all that he's given us. All right, if we're going to talk about stewarding what God's given us, we have to ask that basic question, like (laughs) what does it mean to be a steward? So what does it mean to you to be a steward? Like open discussion here, not rhetorical question. (laughs) What does it mean to be a steward? Managing, okay, managing. Taking care of something that belongs to someone else. else. Right, right. Yeah, I I think these are good definitions. I mean, there's different ways you can frame it. But I think a steward, yeah, like we've been talking, is someone who is entrusted with another's wealth and charged with the responsibility of managing in the owner's best interest. We're stewards of what we've been given, like we're talking about. And since, as we've already covered, all things belong to God, we are then responsible for how we use, not just the, you know, the 10% tithe that we give every Sunday or something like that, but 100% of all that we have for God, okay? Not just the Sunday that we give to God, right? The one day of the week we give to, it's every day belongs to God. So all the time, all the money, all the talents, all the possessions, all of it, we steward to the glory of God. So again, we gotta, we gotta fight against that tendency that I think is pervasive in our like Christianese culture. Like, yeah, God gets my 10% of my income. He gets my one day a week and then everything else is about me. Right? I think that's how we functionally operate, though we wouldn't say it. In our, in our, I'm, I'm broad brushing here. Okay, that's probably not you. But I'm just saying we got to break free of that mindset and realize, no, it all belongs to God. Every single day, every single minute, every single second, every single cent that I own, it belongs to him truly. And so then, of course, with this foundational understanding, we got to ask that next question, right? So how are we to steward what God has given us. Like, how are we to do this well? And of course, I think there are a lot of um, different passages we could go to for this. But I think I want to go to Jesus' um, parable in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. You can open there in your Bibles. But it's here that Jesus is instructing his disciples on how they are to live in light of his inevitable return. Jesus is talking with them, like, at the end of the age... I will return, even though I don't know when. That's a crazy thing. I don't know when I'm going to return. It's going to happen. 
And what's important for you as my disciples is to know how you are to live in light of my inevitable return. And so then he begins to give them a series of parables instructing them how they are to live in light of his return to them. So this is the context for the parable that we come to in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Jesus says here, For that day, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. And so this man calls his own servants, and he entrusts his possessions to them. To one of his servants, he gave five talents. To another servant, he gave two talents. And to another servant, he gave one talent, depending on each of their ability. Then he went on a journey. He went away. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going away. And immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, earned five more. And in the same way, the man with two went and earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came, and he settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached and presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents, and see, I have earned five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more. His master again said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You are a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went off and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And his master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and I gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we come to this text again, this parable of Jesus, we're reminded once more at the outset, God owns everything. We see this in the master who has all this wealth, and then he gives it to his servants, which brings us to the second truth we've been covering. We are responsible to steward what he's given us, no matter how much or how little. Now, in reality, when we look at this parable, um, it actually demonstrates that all of us have been given something immeasurable, okay? Something of immeasurable value. So we think of a talent like, oh, he only got one talent. That, in modern day age, would be the equivalent of something like $600,000. With inflation, it's probably way more now. Um, so it's not like they're giving just like a little, oh, he only got one. No, it's like a lot, a lot, of my, like 20 years worth of labor in that day and age. 
And so assuming this value, you know, the one with five talents got like something like $3 million, the one with two, like 1.2 million, you can do the math yourself, and then the one with like $600,000. And the point is, each servant was some, given something very valuable to take care of for his master, right? And the same is being applied to his disciples here today. We're given gifts, resources by God, and we are expected to steward it well. And so no matter what we have, God expects us to use it faithfully and well to make much of him and then in light of his return, in light of his inevitable return. We use what we have with the expectation that we will see Jesus face to face one day. Then we receive two descriptions, of course, of how we can steward what he's given us. In light of Christ's inevitable return, we can either steward it well or poorly, right? We can steward it well or poorly. And what is spent with the most time here is like poor stewardship. That seems to be the danger here. There's a lot of words and sentences given to that. And so we're to, to evaluate this warning carefully for us. So as we look at this servant who, who squanders it, it's interesting. He was given the least, and he was also the one who squandered it the most. And I think this is somewhat telling for all of us because as a side note, just because you have little doesn't get you off the hook. God expects you to steward what you have, no matter how much or how little, to the same level of accountability with those who have much. But as we look at the actions of the unfaithful servant here, we find that he's called lazy. He's called wicked. Like Jesus doesn't mince words with this guy at all. And I think as we look at this again, like, what was it about his actions that were so evil and so wicked? Like, you're talking with your, your coworker, your friend, who does, like, not know anything about the Bible. What was it that he did that was so evil and wicked? Like, how would you answer that as we look at this together? Like, does that, like, strike you at all? Like, how, how strongly Jesus feels about this? I think we just kind of overlook it. Like, eh, that's a respectable sin. That's not a big deal. But like, we're looking at this and like, this is a little bit more serious than maybe I, I thought before. What do you guys think? Like, why was this so evil and wicked? I, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. What did the faith, unfaithless service do? Like, what did he do that was wicked and, and lazy? I'm sorry, I've been framing that question wrong. What did he do? He did nothing. He didn't do anything at all. <laughs> Isn't that like the temptation of all of us, though, to like do nothing? I mean, just to take easy life. Like, isn't that what our society feeds us day and in? Like comfort, ease, entertainment, pleasure. Do nothing. You're fine. If your life is comfortable, do nothing. Like, you're fine. And like, this is evil in God's eyes. He neglected his responsibility to take care of what God had given him. He, he didn't take his master's return seriously at all. And what were the consequences? He was thrown out into outer, outer darkness and honestly into hell. That's where he was thrown. His faithless actions proved that he really didn't know God as his master. And again, this is just emphasizing it matters what we do with what God has given us. And I don't think we think about it enough as we should. We don't want to like overemphasize, but at the same time, like I don't think that's our struggle in our society today at all. I don't think we think about it enough. So it's also important for us again that we recognize he wasn't scolded 
because he didn't turn his one into two, right? Like, oh, this guy turned five into 10. He turned two into four. He should have turned that one into two. No, he scolded. He didn't even put it in the bank. He literally did nothing as we're talking about. He didn't even put it in the bank. And the master's like, you think I'm a hard man to please? Like, if you believe that, like, why didn't you even just invest it a little bit in the bank? But I'm not that hard taskmaster you think. All you had to do, just put it in the bank for crying out loud. Get some interest in return. Use it a little bit for me. But you didn't even do that. And so poor stewardship involves using our time, resources, and energy, really doing nothing for God at all. Which brings us then to the question, what, what does faithful stewardship look like? And as we look at the lives of the faithful servants here, they trusted that their master was actually going to return. Like, I'm going to see him one day. And so they risked absolutely everything on this promise. They didn't hold back as far as the money was concerned. They invested it. They took risks for Jesus, for this master. They used the abilities that they had to, to completely multiply what they had. They were productive. They received profitable returns. And they were patient until their master returned. And so at the very end here, the result is the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think that in this class, this is what we're, what we're striving for. We're not striving for perfection. Not all of us are going to be able to turn five into ten, but we are looking to be at least investing the little we have to make some interest. We don't, again, we all have different talents and abilities, but the worst thing we can do is nothing. And so we want to consider this together. We want to grow in knowledge of biblical stewardship and to, again, consider that question like, okay, God, it all belongs to you. How do you want me to use what I have for your glory? And again, we're doing this in light of Christ's return. We're doing this, like every time we take the Lord's Supper too, uh, we proclaim his death until he comes, right? We're keeping that in view every single time. Jesus is going to return. How are we living? How are we stewarding what we've been given? And so again, for the next two weeks, Lord willing, we'll continue to learn how to make much of what he's given for his glory. So this is the two foundational truths of you. Again, walk away with nothing. God owns everything, and we are stewards of all that he's given us, okay? The one sentence, take that home, work it out in your life. And I think it's easy to say, it's easy to assent to, but then when we work it out, that's the hard part. And we all have to work on that individually. Next week, we'll look at hindrances to faithful stewardship, hindrances, and those things which get in the way of us rightly using what God has given us. Um, and so we'll take time to look at that. We'll look a little bit at the prosperity gospel. How is this different than like what these guys are like saying and everything like that? Um, but before we close here in prayer, any question, final questions or comments on this, this foundational level? All right, seeing none, we'll go ahead and close and then get ready for the morning service. Father, we are incredibly grateful for all that you have given us. Lord, we know this truth. We grew up hearing it all our lives. Um, but perhaps we haven't worked this out as we should or as you desire us to. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in our hearts and the minds even this morning to help us flesh out how we can use our lives for your glory how we can use all that you've given us with gratitude and thankfulness. Lord, it's going to look different for all of us, but I pray that we would be a church that you are pleased with the way that we use our resources. We want to hear those words desperately 
well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to long for that day where we will again see you, Jesus, face to face and where we will receive your affirmation and approval for that's all that truly matters here on earth. So help us again, Lord. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Help us to face the idols of our heart, which so often get in the way of using what you've given us appropriately. And again, Lord, we, our desire is to please you in all things. For you, Jesus, have died and were raised again to redeem us. So may we live with, with great gratitude and thankfulness, not holding anything back from serving you or your kingdom here on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.